0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Echopunks recorded live in front of an automated audience. We're gathered today for another one of our salons where we really try to bring a group of people together to talk about a subject, ideally to get deep into the subject. And today's subject is one that uh, some of us present have had decades of experience with, and yet ironically still remains a bit of a mystery to the average person still remains a, a, a bit of a FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt when it comes to the way that people relate to it. And we often try to uh, set up these salons by having a provocateur or someone who offers a provocation. And in this case, uh, my old friend, a uh, good friend, Mark Sermon has joined us. And it was Mark's request uh, that we talk about open source I suspect because Mark, uh, uh, you may have something that you wanna provoke, but I think also because you knew that I would be down to very much dissect and look into the changing nature of open source, the, Uh, 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 ongoing maturation, or perhaps irrelevance and obsolescence, uh, depending who you talk about. But I want to ask you, Mark, uh, uh, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with open source, whether those present or whether those listening uh, uh, in the future, as it were, Um, So I want you to offer a provocation. I want you to give a a reason as to why you wanted us to talk about open source. But before you do so, help us understand, like explain it to me like I'm five. What is open source and why is it something that, you know, we as uh, uh, intellectuals, we as uh, citizens of the Internet, we as people concerned with democracy... Why open source should be part of our literacy should be part of our wheelhouse, as it were. A tall order, I admit. One that I uh, am throwing at you in the spirit of everything we do here is improvised. We discourage preparation, but you know. With that said, Mark, why are you, after all these decades, still a, an open source advocate? As am I. And 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 what is it about open source that you think is is why we should hear? Come today to spend an hour talking about it
1: well it is in fact a tall order to describe open source uh as i would to a five-year-old but i'll, I'll take a shot at it luckily um I, I often use toy metaphors to describe open source so i i have a bit of a head start and i, I would say to you my my kind feathered five-year-old imagine a world where you could only have one toy It could be the most beautiful toy in the world. It could be a a car or a truck or a house or a, you know, imagine what you want, a teddy bear, Um, but you could only have that one toy. Now, it might be the most beautiful toy in the world, and you might be very happy with that. It's very attractive. And, And then I would give you another choice. I would give you an infinite box of Lego. And of course, with that infinite box of Lego, Uh, You could build any toy you want. It might not look as pretty or perfect as that teddy bear or that house or that car because you'd have to build it yourself and you'd be limited by the shapes of the Lego box. But you got a lot of Lego. And, you know, some people will choose the perfect teddy bear or the perfect car. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But a lot of people, and certainly when I was five and at, at almost 55, I would pick the box of Lego. And open source is basically that. It's a box of Lego uh, for technology for the Internet at its core, and we can give a more specific example. But the idea is it's a set of uh, technological building blocks that you combine together to, to either you can modify them, to make them into something new, uh, you can uh, combine them together to make something that you know has multiple properties, uh, but it's basically technical building blocks. And and it, and if I step out of my you know five-year-old definition, um, you know the, the core historical definition for for open source around software is uh, really something that you can see into, so it's it's transparent that you can kind of reuse and and recombine without asking permission of the original uh, creator, uh, and that you can redistribute. Uh, and I've forgotten the fourth freedom for now, but I'll stick with three. Um, I, I think they're the key ones. And so Linux is something like this. I mean, you think about Linux as the, the core part of an operating system and you can actually get the source code of it. That's what it means by open source and make a different version of it. Or you can take for free that, um, you know, that core component and build other things around it, you know, add a web server or uh, add a, an interface or many, many different things. and you know, that really is the, the power of open source, is that ability for people to to reuse it and reshape it and evolve it and improve it collectively. And it relates a little bit to, to how science at its best has worked uh, in a tradition of people sharing what they're learning, what they're doing, uh, so that other people can build on it. Uh, and that means that collectively, we're learning and evolving and innovating together, as opposed to to people just doing it in their own lab or or their own company well so and maybe similarly I'll I, stop with I, that stop with that definition before i get to the provocation and see if, if you want to poke at that jesse well
0: i i was gonna add that you know the law is open source and yeah. and when we sort of assume that the law is open source it's the foundation upon which we build a democracy same with science being another pillar of that democratic society Kind of in contrast to the the post truth society or the openly fascistic vision that we are starting to see, kind of uh, unfortunately, be taken seriously in the political sphere. And it it I love the way you describe the toy, right? The idea that you could have one toy that's really amazing, or you could have an infinite amount of toys that are good enough, right? That 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 allow you to do more and build upon. Uh, Does anyone have any questions in terms of open source as a concept before we invite Mark to give his provocation? Or is there anyone who wants to generally take issue? Jan, please go ahead.
2: Uh, not, not really a, a question. I also don't want to uh, take issue, right? Let's not just start well, with the issue see, here yeah. right They're away. No, Mark. So, so, so first of all, uh, Mark, uh, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, right? Uh, I think what Mozilla has done for the browser is nothing short of admirable, right? And um, you know, similarly to Fox Molder. I want to believe, right? I'm I'm cheering for you. I'm cheering for the open source Mozilla Foundation, uh, and 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 its ambition. That said, and uh, you know, the words democracy and democratization comes up again here, right? Which, in general, I'm also really, really fond of but uh, you know now uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering where would regulation come in? where could regulation uh, play a role to start with i believe that people are good mark i believe that uh, humans do not want to do harm but uh when you think of the fact that you know the uh, election that led to britain leaving the eu was a demo- democratic election right or if you think of the fact that Adolf Hitler was uh, elected democratically, then, uh, you know, I think there are limitations to democracy. Again, I am a believer. I want to believe I am rooting for you, but, uh, you know, I'm also a little uncomfortable. Let's leave it at that.
1: Well, I, I guess the question I would ask back to you at the group and the listeners is uh, uncomfortable with what? I mean, I, I would agree with you that there are limitations to democracy and there also are limitations to open source. And then the limitations, of course, is, is one that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't inherently lead to, to democratic outcomes, however uh, you define uh, them. Risk, but, but risk, Tell me a bit more about your discomfort.
2: So risk, right? To so stay with your analogy and uh, the box of Lego uh, bricks, which sounds great. Sounds absolutely great. But, you know, who knows what people built with those Lego bricks, right? I mean, infinite possibilities. And um, you know, I'm I'm not a doomsday advocate with regards to AI. I believe into the I believe in the positive, but you know there seems to be risk uh, as well. So you know, what could people possibly build with all those Lego bricks?
1: Well, let me. Let, that's a great one. I think you introduced a thing that is implicit in this conversation, and I very specifically didn't put in the in the five year old definition, which is we're. We're now talking about open source in a, a new era or a next era of the internet and in our digital society, which is, what does open source mean in the in the era of AI? And it, it's a really good question that a lot of people are asking. Certainly, we're asking and need to um, to poke at. So, you know, maybe we can get into that a little bit if people are, are interested. But certainly, the core tenets of open source worked pretty well. For software that runs on a on a single machine. Um, and I started to break down as we applied them to software that ran in the cloud or data sets or content and and you know various different things. So there's a lot to take from open source, but but also in the AI era, but also a need to say, like, what how do we take those principles and, and apply them for what? So maybe that that's a conversation to come back to. But on the on the question of uh, of risk which really has in the both the AI era and in, in previous eras been used to to spread what Jesse talked about earlier fear, uncertainty, and doubt. There are big, very rich companies and very rich people, um, some of them are even big, um, that uh you know that have been out there saying, wow, this kind of open source lego set in the ai era is really dangerous like if you know that's totally going to lead to terrorism and all those kind of things it, it was the same thing that that microsoft interesting that they're you know a player again did in the in the linux era and it's a thing that uh a lot of the the kind of dominant software companies did in the early web era around full encryption and if you kind of go back to the question about regulation and risk and technology to the Crypto wars of of the '90s, there was a, a whole effort to really dumb down or limit the the quality of encryption. Basically, that Netscape could ship as the as the first browser, saying you could only offer basically e-commerce grade encryption in versions that would be distributed in the U.S. And if you wanted to distribute the uh, the browser internationally, you would have to distribute a version that would be easily cracked by the, you know, the, the intelligence authority, wow. right, by the CIA or, or the NSA. And, and, of course, you know, the fear was, well, what if the terrorists could use a web browser? What would happen? Um, and, and, of course, had that limitation uh, gotten through Congress, which it didn't, um, you know, we we probably wouldn't have a lot of the things that we love about the Internet. We might have a few less of the things that we don't like about the Internet, but I doubt that. Um, but, you know, the ability to communicate and transact securely are central to the the growth of the things we like about the Internet. And so it's it's a fairly at least it, there's lots of historical precedents, or at moments of technological inflection for, you know, the dominant players to um, to kind of use regulatory arbitrage to, to protect themselves and raise questions about things that might be in some sense democratizing and that many people could play. And I, I mean democracy in the very narrowest sense of that many people could play. And I think a lot of the, the fear-mongering around open source AI at this stage is that kind of regulatory arbitrage by a set of people who have been uh, early, you know, early winners in the generative AI era, who are either you know, owned in part by the big players or owned in part by people who are from the big players. Um, so I, I think we got to be careful about that. Um, and the last thing I'll just say is, is I believe, and you can debate this, we've seen from the last eras of the internet that open source has been actually a better tool if we look at say cybersecurity for solving risks and mitigating risks than things that are done totally in secret, because they allow many people to look at those risks and interrogate them and raise them to people and, and even fix them in, in the case of things like bug, bug bounties. Um, no. So, so I, that, that's I, one of the I, 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 I still think want in that regard. I mean, we're already
0: getting hands up, and I, I still want you to sort of give a chance to give your, your provocation, although I think you described the kind of dynamic that the 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 market the the society is dominated by very large powerful corporate players who to your point used to be opponents of open source but now see open source as part of their competitive advantage certainly microsoft is very much embraced uh, the open source world, in direct contrast to your point of where they were in the '90s, and Meta has been an open source company. At, at least they've presented themselves as such uh, uh, from the outset, even though they run a big black box. Um, so I'm I'm curious, Mark, if if you want to share your provocation or or talk about what you've been essentially uh, inferring through your remarks that there is a real dynamic at play in which yes open source makes things better but we are in a, an environment in which power is even more centralized th- uh, than it was 20 years ago and and to what extent are are we seeing you know regulatory hedges in which open source may just be a prop for people who want to capture the market versus i think what attracts you and i which is open source as a framework, open source as a a way in which you always have not just the checks and balances, but the opportunity to to fork, the opportunity to do new things, which is in and of itself a a kind of freedom. So, you know, uh, Scott, I, I noticed you threw your hand down and I do want you to come back in, but I want Mark, if you want to sort of offer the equivalent of a position statement or a provocation, you know, to, to sort of frame where we should be thinking about open source moving forward in terms of its role, whether in AI or whether in the infrastructure of, of the world around us?
1: Well, uh, uh, you know, to mix mix metaphors and, and ideologies, I, I, I think, you know, the, the position I would take is that in the AI era, open source um, provides the best chance By people banding together around open source AI, the best chance of some, some version of a more diverse, competitive, democratic landscape for the next era of technology. And that may be temporary. I mean, I I kind of have this temporary autonomous zone idea in my head of like, that's, that's the best you can get right open source has won and lost at various different periods and gained ground and lost ground and had ground and never gained than it tried to. But I, I think as a as a way to create more flexibility and creativity and diversity in the ecosystem, it's our our best chance into in let's say the next five, 15 years of sort of the, the current AI era. Um, and then you know on the on the kind of the Facebooks and the Microsoft's and whatever I, I see them as being our allies in the sense of, you know, you, you think about a, a Gramscian idea of a of a coalition, which is, you know, better to, to get the people close to you, even if you really disagree with them and have different allies, than, you know, than uh fight with each other and let the fascists win. And and so I would rather work with um with Facebook who I have got lots of disagreements with. But who doesn't, isn't trying to carve out a turf as a proprietary infrastructure player in the generative AI space because they're trying to, to, you know, basically make a a plumbing play, which is we're going to be in social media, we're going to be with the end user, we're not going to compete at the infrastructure level. So, like, that's a good ally to have towards that that cause, uh, even if there's lots of things you disagree with them on. Microsoft's a super interesting player because um they're playing such a long game that they have deep bets on both sides and they win no matter what and so if open source wins they own github you know you you'll get the ceo of github out they're talking about how so much ai is open source which is true uh and how you know they want to be the leader in the generative ai around era around open source and then they're, they've got so much uh, so many other eggs in the open AI basket, which is the, you know, the most closed secretive organization that you could imagine. Um, and so, you know, Microsoft's, I think, a different beast. I mean, I, I often ask ourselves, like, how how close do we get or not get to GitHub? Not because I don't see them the same way as Facebook. I do. I mean, they're, they're a good ally. So the people who, in, in particular, do policy work there around open source and AI are great. Um, but they're tied to this funny double bet that that has Microsoft winning no matter no matter what. Well, and,
0: and Jan has his hand up. And Scott, feel free to throw your hand up again. And I'll honor you first in the queue. I, I, to your point, Mark, I think it's false for us to assume that these are monolithic entities. And so in your dealing with these companies, do you get a sense that not only are they playing both sides, but are there you know, elements within who are, for example, championing open source and very much believe it in terms of the future of these companies, whether Meta or Microsoft, you know, to what extent does, uh, you know, your role within uh, the Mozilla Foundation allow you to engage in these types of, you know, uh, 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 intra-enterprise battles? And battles isn't the really right word because it's friendly. Right. But there there are, you know, these are not monolithic organizations. And to what extent do you or can you identify that the trends or developments that allow for influence within these kind of, you know, sprawling uh, uh, industrial organizations?
1: Um it's a lot in there, and I want to get to Scott and Jan's questions, but I, I guess I'll say yes, they're not monolithic. And also it, it's not so much that inside them that there's people who believe in open source and there are allies because they believe they're also motivated at, by very different things than than most of the people. Certainly, I think that you and I would be jet- motivated by Jesse in that you know I'm interested in, as I said, you know diverse diversity and de- democratization, also making sure that we build the AI era in a way that is is kind of safe and private and trustworthy, and we make a bunch of design decisions in open source stuff we build that lend themselves to that which are design decisions that are in no way inherent in in open source or anything that you would build you have to want those things and and build for them um and and i'll i'll put a um a link in the chat in a second um and and certainly you know if you're putting this out of the podcast you could could link to it as well so there's a great paper called uh I think it's called open for business i just pulled it up um, Big Tech Concentrated Power in the Political Economy of Open AI by Meredith Whitaker um, and Sarah West and, and David Witter. Meredith is the, the head of the Signal Foundation. And you know, it it basically makes the point that it's not de facto or preordained that open source is gonna make AI uh, democratic. And I I agree with her on this point. I, I think it's easier, I think there's more people who've got that that intent. Um, Then maybe she gives credit for in the paper or they give credit for in the paper. And certainly I do think you can make alliances with people whose whose intent is different or motivations are different, as I say, that are, are helpful. And that's where, you know, Meredith and I diverge often. In that, you know, in Facebook's case, they're just trying to push down the costs of a necessary piece of infrastructure where they're not trying to be directly in the market. And that's what you know linux has been right is it, it's the linux foundation is very much held in, by corporate capture it doesn't mean i don't think it's a great thing i mean it is it holds a piece of the infrastructure of our digital society in common and is controlled by no one corporate player i i think that's better than living in a world where windows nt1 and that runs the planet and and that was what you know linux changed um, you know, is, is Linux underpinning AWS and Azure and GCP any different than Windows NT? That's another debate for another day, probably. But certainly we could go build, you know, w- whatever we wanted as an alternative to those ourselves on, on top of the Linux infrastructure. So I think it's it's not so much that there's different opinions in these companies. I think there's different motivations is, is actually the more uh, important thing. And it's okay to have alliances with people who have different Motivations, if in the end the thing you're a lot aligned around, um, you know, kind of serves everybody's needs. And I think in the case of open source generative AI, you know, we have that alignment with, say, somebody like Facebook.
0: Mm-hmm. Scott, and then Jan?
3: Yeah, I, this is really great. Thanks, Mark, for all this. This is really good. Uh, there's a couple things I just wanted to throw out there, kind of maybe a pushback a little bit. Uh, Number one, I don't think open source is democratic. And number two, I think the big players and such are actually products uh, of open source, natural evolution of open source. And I'll tell you why, because it's a philosophical thing. Number one, I don't think open source is democratic because from an outsider's perspective, it's there seem to be sort of it's a very high barrier to entry for a lot of people. It feels a lot more maybe it is democratic in the old sense of Pericles, in, uh, in Athens where only the male citizens were the ones who could vote and that was called the democracy. And so there seems to be more of a, it's a niche space. There are There is a sort of uh, it's a high barrier to entry and select gatekeepers. And then the attitudes that seem to flow through the space are more libertarian and, are, and uh, anarchic than really democratic in that sense. I don't think there's that sense of an objective checks and balance or whatever. I mean, you may be able to argue differently, but from an outsider's perspective, that's kind of what it looks like. And so I don't think you can use the word democratic because it I don't think it truly aligns with that. And the second thing is, is the the big players are here at least it seems because of some of the philosophies that were at the core of, of, of open source in the early days, the, you know, coming out of uh, people like Kevin Kelly, Ken Kesey, Stuart Brand, people who were on the well uh, out West sort of started the whole movement of information must be free. It's the philosophy that's kind of behind open source, but that whole philosophy is what led to the devaluing of an individual's personal identity and information, the idea that everything should be free online. It was capital, like it was taken advantage of by the big players. And so, you know, we were all conditioned to believe that everything should be free online, open source. It's a good thing, but what it did is it turned it into this massive amount of information that these big players could exploit. And they continued to pressure people or to, uh, you know, um, you know, get people to believe that if they gave up their information, if it was all free, It was a good thing for society so those are a couple pushbacks i'd like to throw out there
0: just to add some the mud in the water but i'd love to hear your thoughts now just to be be clear murley
1: yeah
4: hold
0: on i i just want to find out murley were you in hot response
4: to scott yeah i wanted to build on sort of what scott was saying because it made me think uh, of a couple of open source examples that i've encountered i agree that there is a high barrier to entry um i've had a fair amount of experience working with and learning open source softwares, usually for art, uh, but just in technology projects in general. And often uh, it's it's kind of a gated community, like you said, and it can be hard to actually get anywhere with if there's poor documentation or, you know, if you put enough effort in and have the literacy, it it works. And I think the issue is that the communication uh, of some of the ideas and the values of open source aren't there. To bring it back to the Lego metaphor, yeah, if you have a ton of Lego bricks, you can can build anything. But most kids are being sold or given or gifted, whatever, Lego sets where you have the specific blocks and you're building this one set. and I think you see that a lot in gaming, like, for instance, the Fortnite engine or Roblox give you the tools to create things, but it's on their platform. It's not open source. It's within their world. The other thing I was thinking of was uh, open source 3D printed firearms, because I'm not sure how democratic those are, uh, but they are open source and readily available to anyone with a web browser. So. Uh, I I do agree with a lot of things Scott's saying there. I think that there is definitely merit to open source and a lot of power when everyone's acting in good faith, um, but that's not always the case.
2: Now, can I push back on the pushback? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I, mean, I, would, I, uh, I would I would argue. Sorry, Mark. Uh, I'm I'm good. jumping to the rescue here. I would argue, Scott, that um, um, open source is democratic, right? Because if skill is the barrier, then you could also say that soccer is not a democratic sport, right? Everyone can get a ball and play soccer, but if you you know don't make it into the national team, please do not say soccer was not democratic. Uh, I'm a little tongue in cheek here. Uh, I know that you uh, understand uh, how I mean this. The second thing is, Scott, uh, you argued why the big players were coming to the plate, right? I I want to simplify this and say they basically participate because they cannot afford not to participate. They basically have to. And one thing, Mark, that resonated really, really um, strongly with me uh, that you you spoke about uh, or alluded to, at least I understood you this way, was uh basically the barriers that uh, let's say big tech is erecting around ai myth that big tech is uh, spelling around dangers uh, in order to then uh, yeah create those barriers and keep the small players out right that's that's really strongly resonating with me and um i noticed that at least that's my impression uh, your foundation seems to be um quite ambitious in trying to create transparency in reporting in real time about what you guys are developing, etc. The word trust has come up in this conversation here quite a bit. And I was thinking, you know, to uh, that event a couple of weeks ago when um, OpenAI uh, fired its CEO and reinstalled him a week later. And so till today, no one understands really what happened behind the scenes because it's so intransparent. So, Mark, I'm wondering, um you know is your job or uh, is mozilla ai is the foundation is your real job to be communicators and create transparency around the issue
0: go ahead mark sumit has his hand up but since that was a direct question i
1: want to i want to hear from sumit as well well let me just say uh, I'll, I'll i'll take your defense on but i'm also going to agree with scott um you know i i certainly never said that open source is inherently democratizing i think that it gives you the raw material to do democratic things. Uh, I I don't think that uh, OpenAI or Microsoft or Google's platforms in the sense that I mean around building a more democratic technological ecosystem lend themselves to that. They also have been, I mean, including Facebook famously in the Arab Spring, those platforms have been used for democratic ends. And so, I mean, my interest is in the affordances that these technological approaches offer, not in, in assigning them some or or determining that they have some, you know, magical or you know democratic
5: properties. And
1: and I think what you're describing, both in your critique there and and in the piece around sort of how the big companies have used open source is something that often gets talked about as the California ideology, which I put a link in the in the chat about, which is you know, this kind of weird suit blend of of Libertarianism and and hippie leftism, um, and uh, that has been used to kind of whitewash Silicon Valley as being some force of empowerment. When really we're talking about the creation of of companies that are, are bigger than the India Dutch East India Company or the British East India Company ever were, both in their wealth and in their global scale. So I mean, you know, it's a kind of whitewashing these imperial forces. Um, and I think open source gets tied up in that, but but it's used by that. It is not um, well, Meredith would would probably say it's defined by that, and so that's a good point of debate and that's it's where the the kind of questions of of what you can use it for come in. but I I think to then get, You know to get to your point
0: uh although allow me to quickly interject and say thank you so much for the californian ideology reminder i definitely have to reach out to richard barbrook to see if he would come join us in a salon i'd love to reach out to what's
1: that i'll come to that one
0: yeah, because that would be, like, he's still doing really interesting work. I'd also love to invite Meredith Whitaker. She tends to be very busy versus Richard's a bit more of an academic, so he might be more available. But the California ideology, I think, is a a, a hugely influential text. But please, I'll, I'll let you finish and your and answer. And I'll,
1: I'll just say the last thing on that, which is, well, maybe I'll say two things. The, 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 the counterpoint is there are people with very different ideologies uh, and I sense a European accent of some sort in Yon, so maybe he's a. That's them. very
2: polite of you. Very polite of you, Mark. Uh, yeah,
1: it is you. you know there is a European, and particularly German and, and French tradition, by the German, of of an open source community that's very different than the California ideology wing of open source, as driven by privacy uh, and security and a, a very different set of social values. And that's a, I mean, the Chaos Computer Congress. In,
2: in yeah, yeah, yeah. We love them. We yeah. love them, you know, yes. so
1: it's a, is a, there's different wings of open source like like other things that bring lots of different value sets to the to the table. And I certainly would consider myself more tied to the European um, wing of it than the American wing. Uh, and and it's interesting that in the the current era around open source and generative AI, where you see the, the challenger companies in open source are really coming out of French and Germany and Mistral and Aleph Alpha. And it, it's on purpose that we've put Mozilla AI, uh, at least in European time zones. It's, it's I mean, the head of it is in, in the UK and not in Europe, which is a whole other sad topic about the UK not being a part of Europe anymore. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I think it's, it, you know, I would just kind of back up and look at it broadly like that. And, you know, on the last, Point that you made on our we is our most important job to be communicators. It's one important job and we need to get better at it. And it's certainly like top of my list for things we're focusing on in the next couple of years about the role of open source in the in this AI era. And we led a group of people who signed a letter sort of defending open source AI around the UK Safety Summit, which I'll also paste in, in the chat in a second, which was a part of that convener and communicator role. But we also think our role has to be builders. Like Mm -hmm. for the affordances to exist, you have to build stuff that just like with anything, right? It goes back to what are you designing for? You have to design for those affordances, whether that's around the licenses, whether that's around the technology, whether that's around the usability of the technology, which is one of the things you raise about around democratization. Uh, And the thing we're doing with Mozilla AI is in some ways almost like a Linux distribution for open source large language models if you think about linux in the beginning you know there were people who go compile their own kernel well obviously that's not very welcoming to most people or there were people who you know could use a rudimentary version of the operating system that had the kernel and a bunch of other tooling around it but it really was a red hat and ubuntu and many others who built the idea of, of linux distributions that meant that anybody could use linux fairly easily and that's a piece that the, in addition to the communication piece that we're really focused on, is not to build our own open source LLM for models, but to make it easy to use them, to train them, to uh, have them interconnect with data in privacy-respecting ways, and 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 so on. So I, I think we we do need to be communicators as Mozilla, but we also need to be builders and and to work with builders. Samiz,
5: yeah. Thanks, Mark. Um... I'm, I'm going to build off of a couple of different points. So uh, it may take me uh, a bit to get to my question, but, you know, Jen uh, talked a little bit about open source representing democracy and, uh, or as democratic in nature. And I just think that the, you know, in order for democracy to be held upheld, we have to have good governance frameworks. And we know that open source is still riddled with challenges around how governance works, especially at the uh, organizational level. You know, Jen, you pointed out uh, Sam Altman uh, being fired and coming back reminded me of uh, Richard Stallman from the Free Software Foundation who left and then come, came back again as well. You know, those are still models that we're riddled with. Um, and and so I just sort of want to point that out that. But really, my my question was coming out of a point that uh, both Mark, you made and Murley made, which is you talked a little bit about diversity, and you know, Merly um, really talked a little bit about hurdles. And as we think about some of the work happening in in the open source space, it feels like it's still largely a technology centric ecosystem. And as we're building this space out, it feels like diversity that you're talking about is beyond just diversity of you know racial bias, which was a big question in AI and software for a long time. Now we're also talking about the induction of you know. Uh, ethnographers and social experts and people who are really thinking about what it means to build an ecosystem in a more holistic way. And it still feels like for them, the entry into this space still does not feel democratic and still does not feel like it is um, it is as easy. It still feels riddled with hurdles. So I'm I'm curious to your thoughts around how you're thinking about this and how you see other organizations taking the lead on this stuff.
1: Yeah. So I uh, uh, maybe come back to the governance question in a, in a minute if there's interest, but I, I think the piece around... A
5: lot of interest, a
0: lot of interest. Uh,
1: uh, but but I think the piece around diversity of, of who builds the technology, that is like a much deeper question. And, and we we have a very nerdy thing. Maybe I'll paste that. I haven't pasted it in the, in the in there yet. Um, this paper on trustworthy AI that we wrote in, in 2020 that lays out our idea, how you get there. One of the key pieces is you know, diverse stakeholders who kind of say, these are the things that need to be true to get to AI that works in service of humanity. And one of them is that diverse stakeholders, including those traditionally cut out of developing AI, need to be the ones who, who build it. And so that's a core to our belief system and a, and a piece of what we're working on. And, and I was, but you'll notice in that statement, it doesn't say open source. I mean, I think it's a challenge for the core of our tech industry in general and how tech is built is it still, and ties? I mean, I'm reading this book right now, Brotopia, which is a great book, uh, if you haven't read it, um, you know, that talks a lot about how that California ideology fed into the, you know, tech being one of the most male-dominated industries of, of any. Um, and um, and that's not, you know, we're not just talking about gender diversity, we're talking about skill set and geography and racial background, and all those kind of things. But but even on, on gender, tech does horribly. Um, and, and so I think we need to tackle those things broadly, including in open source. And, uh, you know, we're a part of a, a set of people. There's a couple of different things. I, I would actually include VAS in this list of, of people. There is a wave of people trying to bring a multidisciplinary approach of who gets into tech, whether that's in things like the master public policy that that VAS set up at Mac with, with Cliff, uh, or you know, we do something called the Responsible Computing Challenge, which helps professors who teach undergraduate computer science build multidisciplinary elements, you know, specifically around ethics into undergrad computer science curriculum. There's something called the um, oh, what's it called the the Pitt University Network, the Public Interest Technology University Network, which is building out multidisciplinary programs a- across um, across the U.S. Our our stuff is in the U.S., but also in a bunch of African and and Asian countries as well in terms of shifting undergrad computer science curriculum. So I think looking in general about how more multidisciplinarity comes into the picture in who goes into the tech industry and then on the the demand side, how they're hired is really critical. And those are just some examples of the education layer of people trying to tackle that. Um, In my very strongly held view, Open source is, is a significant part of what's needed to make that happen in that having technology that people can by, by right of contract study because it is transparent, you can take it apart, you can look under the hood, that's essential to doing that kind of education. If people can't get in and tinker with the technology, it, it's hard to you know imagine them learning what so- the they really need to learn.
0: I mean, on that point, how aware are you of kind of open source hardware or open source, you know, like there's that guy who does the open source tractor and, you know, he's kind of the one guy, but are is there a movement to get open source focused back on kind of n- not just the software side, but the hardware side, the robotics side. I mean, how much moment- AI seems to dominate the news in terms of the large language models or the similar machine learning models. Are you seeing a translation into the more tangible, you know, t- to my point of tractors, but, you know, EVs and other kind of uh, aspects that we don't traditionally associate with open
1: source? Well, let, let's hope. I mean, I think there's some of the hardware and there are places where open source has been successful and and more successful and less successful hardware is maybe in the middle and hopefully there's a second a second round i do know people working on open source uh, or open hardware focused on you know either edge computing or um lower 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 energy cost ai training and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting one of the person ibadar who is helping us kind of build our community around open source AI is from the open hardware movement and sees a lot of similarities Cool. there where, you know, what the open hardware movement really struggled with was almost exclusively, or, or in the counter case, very rarely could you build the whole hardware stack openly. You had to accept that you would have hybrid boards or chipset Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. or, or whatever. Right. Um and I think we're we're in that zone, probably in all of this stuff, where it, it's it's about what components are important to be open source, uh, and what ones do you kind of just say, yeah, you know, I'm just going to take that off the shelf, and that thing is is locked down in in some mm-hmm. way.
0: now, uh, Jan and Scott both have their hands up, but I wanted to quickly ask you on the governance side, uh, briefly, because you know we are running out of time. Who is the Mozilla Foundation accountable to? Like, is it a member-run organization? Is it a funder-run organization? Like, what is the governance, uh, again, simplified, but what is the governance structure of the Mozilla Foundation?
1: Well, interestingly, um, I I posted a Fast Company article or op-ed that I wrote a couple weeks ago in response to the OpenAI governance crisis. Uh, And OpenAI has the... On paper, a distinction of, of being similar to Mozilla and we're both American 501 c 3s or both American nonprofits uh, with commercial uh, that control or own commercial entities that make end user consumer software. So we're, you know, there's not a lot of us. Um, and the difference that I, I make is um, or the kind of distinction I draw is we're really set up to be a nonprofit public institution that carries our mission forward and that who we have on our board, which we just expanded our board and I think probably link from there, or I can put another link up there. We just expanded our board to include a, a really interesting additional set of board members. Those people hold us accountable to, to being this nonprofit public institution, as does, you'll find this funny, possibly the American tax code in that by being a 51 c 3 like our assets, as is the case in OpenAI's assets, I, it's gonna be interesting to see how they get out from under this, have to be used in perpetuity for a public purpose. So, if we were to fold or if we were to sell Firefox, those assets would need to go back to a similarly chartered organization or or back to the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the combination of of good board governance and accountability to the tax code are really the main things we have. And in in OpenAI's case, I think they just they, they've had a very weak board. They haven't really set themselves up to be a public institution in ways that you know I, I talk about in there, uh, and I think kind of just changed their mind along the way. It's like, oops, we set ourselves up as a nonprofit. Really, we're a startup, um, and then the board tried to act as if it was that, and then the investors got upset, and they're trying to unfuck it. Um, so I, you know, we'll we'll see where that lands. Right on,
2: Jan, Go ahead. Um, with regards to interdisciplinary training uh, that we spoke about three minutes ago. Can you ever um, foresee a future in which um, not a technologist is at the helm of uh, an AI company? For example, could there be a time where a sociologist or a philosopher is leading an AI company? And the reason why I'm interested in this is um, basically you know, the purpose, the use case, and the angle. You know, A few of the things that you mentioned uh, here struck me as pretty philosophical, Mark, already. So, um, you know, do uh, the tech people continue to basically dominate and uh, shape the conversation or uh, will we see um, more cultural society and philosophic stream into uh, the dialogue around AI?
4: Um,
1: Well, I hope so. I mean, certainly there is a valorization of of engineers and actually a very narrow American engineering mindset i mean the 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 first couple of um chapters of that brotopia book are really good at kind of they don't call it the california ideology but talking about the california ideology and and sort of libertarian broism and and peter Thiel and sort of how that has defined a lot of the norms of what we think of as an entrepreneur um and a leader of a tech company and and certainly I would like to think that we will see less of that in, in the world for sure. In our case, um, you know, our, one of our two co-founders, our remaining co-founder, Mitchell Baker is a lawyer. She's not a a technologist. You know, I, I have a a puny, uh, you know, three-year BA in the history of community media from the university of Toronto. I, I don't have a, you know, I, I tinkered with computers as a kid and, and I'm a, television person but I'm I'm not a computer engineer by any stretch of the imagination um you know there, there's lots of people out there who don't come at it through a traditional path I mean in in some ways the there is still I think opportunity for interdisciplinarity and different kinds of leadership it, it where you see the um I think the over-indexing on this sort of bro engineer, thing is in venture capital in terms of who they look for, um, and, and in in big company tech hiring and in terms of who they sort for, and, and those are two places that that are worth a whole other seminar to kind of go at, right? I mean, I think venture capital is a, and all of the the myths around what a good tech entrepreneur are, um, is a is a really critical part of this the problem we want to solve.
0: Well, and, right. and Mark Anderson and the whole, you know, no uh, accelerationist movement is a, a, a travesty to itself. Scott, I did notice that you lowered your hand. Do you still want to take that opportunity before I throw it to Chris?
3: Yeah, I guess my just my point, building off something you said, and also what Jan said, is I, I, I mean, you talked about the extension of things like tractors and other spaces, and I just look at the at the decline. Of the maker movement and such and the number of sort of little coding shops for kids that have closed and all those sorts of things that have they came and they went and uh, I think this goes back to Jan's point is there just isn't that diversity of thought that diversity of input that diversity of perspective in order to sustain an extension of an open source philosophy the way it stands right now into a larger cultural context Um, so I I, I mean it's going to need a philosophical shift and maybe that's you know just completely undoing that bro sort of bro culture and the engineer focus and such that it has right now
0: well and and to your point where are the community spaces that sustain the community and, you know, we, we have had that over the years. I would hope that that will have a resurgence, but certainly the housing crisis throughout North America means that spaces aren't cheap, right? And that's why I think it's a lot of those spaces kind of went away. Chris, uh, please jump in.
6: So and I think I'm just building on what Jan was saying about picking a philosopher or a tech person. I just, Andrew Lloyd Webber has one of his, uh, one of his musical Starlight Express, They Roller Skate. And I remember him describing the challenge of do you find singers who can roller skate or roller skaters that can sing? And I, you know, I, I think you can probably do both. I think Mark, you, you sort of uh, alluded to this that you don't have to be kind of one or the other, but hopefully you get, you get a bit of a hybrid and whatever you get, they're probably gonna be anchored more on one side or the other. So I pose that that's not a question. I know you're looking for direct questions, but I just want to throw some Andrew Blake Weber into the uh, conversation. Oh, well,
1: and my, and my guess. Is that in the actual casting of that musical? Um, you know, you, you got a lead who was a singer and a, a chorus who were roller skaters. And, you know, ultimately it's about teamwork.
6: I think that was a realization that sometimes it's easier to teach skaters to sing <laughs> depending <laughs> on the
0: role. <laughs> Well, and, you know, in closing, to reiterate something Jan said, uh, in an era of disinformation, in an era uh, of uh, complete and total fiction, what is the communication strategy for the Mozilla Foundation? I mean, other than kind of white papers, other than op-eds, you know, w- w- what are the general thoughts in terms of both ensuring that the Mozilla Foundation, is is part of the process, part of the policy process, part of the development process. I mean, how do you guys approach that in what is essentially a very highly saturated, highly polluted information space? You know, do, do you as an organization wrestle with how do you get your message out there when there are so many other people putting out all sorts of different messages?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's, I say it's, it's a great question and we've struggled to get our meshes through in the last year more than previously and i would say a lot of people who are on the kind of trustworthy responsible ai side have as well and it, it's interesting it we've actually gotten more media coverage than ever and then people like to gebru or or Deb Raji or others who are really you know b- big thinkers on trustworthy ai or, or some of the questions around bias and and ai um, also, have gotten more press coverage. I mean, Tim and Deb were both on the Time AI 100. And the noise about AI is just so loud that even if you're louder than you were last year, you're, you're drowned out. And in particular, you know, that the media has adopted this possibly, um, you know, engineered. I mean, I, I'm not too much of a conspiracy theorist, but certainly, you know, people with shared interests come on opposite sides you wonder um you know binary of the accelerationist and the and the effective altruist um and uh or the you know, the, the, the yeah. doomer and the optimist or however you want to talk about it um you know Jan Talon and, and Mark and um and you know that that the the high order bit in breaking through is to try to create a, a third way, with mm-hmm. the narrative and whether that's us or the Timnitz or Debs or you guys on the you know on the call to say this idea that is i mean and we've been here before you know jesse you and i you know thinking back 20 years this idea that it's all rosy or it's all doom is actually just a part of the same story and we got to break it up and say what's real like, mm-hmm. what's real democracy look like? How do we actually build it and make the design decisions? What's real division of power and opening up the market look like? How do we actually design for that? What's the nuance of policy interventions that um, you know make sure that AI doesn't harm people and that it's set up better to um, to empower people? So, I, I think that the key piece of it is to try to really push that a, a third narrative and and break up that binary over the mm-hmm. course of the next year it's we have would say it's, it's literally in an organizational goal setting kind of way like top of our list to shift well
0: and, and you know i'm a big fan of manifestos so you know on the one Dropping hand rules. challenge accepted but on the other i think this is a job for richard barbrook in that right. i think having him in the kind of salon yes exactly would, would facilitate a really interesting conversation so i, I am, what am conscious happened. I am conscious of the fact that we're out of time. Uh, So thank you, Mark. I really appreciated uh, you joining us. I do hope you can join us again in the future when we have a topic that catches your interest. Uh, Thanks to everyone else uh, who joined and who showed up. Of course, you can hear this on all your favorite media platforms. Uh, Any other final thoughts, anybody?
2: This was great, thank you. Thank you, really great. Everybody.
0: Right on. All right, take care. Bye